this is Mike from Political Theory and um, other stuff. I don't have much to say before we begin the episode. This is the fourth episode we've done overall. This is the first episode for a book called Capitalist Realism. We go through the book chapter by chapter. This episode covers the first half of chapter one of that book. As with previous episodes, please ignore the audio quality. The content is is worth it. Believe me, it's worth it. It's mind-blowing stuff we're doing. And forgive my uh, reading quality. If it drives you insane, skip ahead. But please understand why I'm doing that. And if you aren't aware of that, go back to our introduction episode to the podcast where I explain what the deal is. I hope you all enjoy the first half of Chapter 1 of Capitalist Realism. All right, we're back again, at it again. Today we are talking about Mark Fisher's Capitalist Realism. We decided to do this book after reading Who Dies, the article by Nicholas Vargas. Uh, and we decided to do that because it, Capitalist Realism is mentioned or referenced in the book and because it's a, uh, I would say, like seminal work of the mm-hmm. 21st century as far as political theory goes. And so conveniently uh, is written in a way that I can understand. So me too. Me too. And that's, that helps out. That helps out big time. So what we're going to try to do at least for the foreseeable future is just go through chapter by chapter. We're going to devote probably about an episode per chapter. It depends on, on how the chapters evolve. Some chapters might be too short for that some chapters might be too long for that we'll just we'll just vibe it out awesome awesome uh all right yeah yeah if you don't if you don't mind firing it up yeah no not at all uh so the first title is the first chapter is titled it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism let's begin in one of the key scenes in alfonso cuaron's 2006 film children of men clive owen's character theo visits a friend at Battersea Power Station, which is now some combination of government building and private collection. Cultural treasures, Michelangelo's David, Picasso's Guernica, Pink Floyd's Inflatable Pig, are preserved in a building that is itself a refurbished heritage artifact. This is our only glimpse into the lives of the elite holed up against the effects of a catastrophe which has caused mass sterility. No children have been born for a generation. Theo asks the question, how... How all this can matter if there will be no one to see it. The alibi can no longer be future generations since there will be none. The response is nihilistic hedonism. I try not to think about it. What is unique about the dystopia in Children of Men is that it is specific to late capitalism. This isn't the familiar totalitarian scenario routinely trotted out in cinematic dystopias. See, for example, James McTeague's 2005 V for Vendetta. In the PD, James' novel... on which the film is based, democracy is suspended and the country is ruled over by a self-appointed warden. But wisely, the film downplays all of this. For all that we know, the authoritarian measures that are everywhere in place 
could have been implemented within a political structure that remains notionally democratic. The war on terror has prepared us for such a development. The normalization of crisis produces a situation in which the repealing of measures brought in to deal with an emergency becomes unimaginable. When will the war be over? Yeah, I think that's a, unfortunately very similar to kind of a, a, a situation that we live in now. Um, you know, we really are, uh, we talked about this before, but we live in a scenario uh, where our entire lives uh, are basically bookmarked uh, and filled with crisis after crisis after crisis. And while the crises do come to an end sometimes, uh, obviously not with the war, the responses to those crises, uh, the crises. to the crises have not gone away. Homeland security is still in full effect. Immigration reforms that are based more in racism and fear than reality are still in effect. All kinds of sorts of things. You know, uh, we are well aware, thanks to Edward Snowden, that we are under constant surveillance uh, in every form of media and communication news. Uh, but nobody seems to care because it is just one thing on top of a pile of bullshit crises uh, that are, are truly, at this point, never-ending. I can say for myself that since high school, I don't feel like I've ever lived in a time um, where I haven't been instructed to be really afraid of something, um, whether that is the threat of global terrorism, whether that is, well, I'm not that I'm afraid of it, but being told that our government's coming to take away our rights, coming to take away our guns, any sort of change is viewed as uh, an attack on a fabric that I don't know if it ex ever existed sort of deal. Uh, and it has just become the norm, this radicalized view on how we're supposed to interact in society, um, which I think initially came to my realization following 9-11, just never faded away. Uh, I'd be happy to, to try to do the next uh, paragraph Please do. here. Please okay. do. So watching children of men, we are inevitably reminded of the phrase attributed to Frederick Jameson and Slavo Žižek, that it is easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism. That slogan captures precisely what I mean by capitalist realism. The widespread sense that not only is capitalism the only viable political and economic system, but also that it is now impossible even to imagine a coherent alternative to it. Once dystopian films and novels were exercises in such acts of imagination. The disasters they depict acting as narrative pretext for the emergence of different ways of living. Not so in Children of Men. The world that it projects seems more like an exploration of ex exacerbation of ours than an alternative to it. In its world, as in ours, ultra-authoritarianism and capital are by no means incompatible. Intermittent camps, or uh, sorry, intermittent. yeah, internment camps and franchise coffee bars coexist. In Children of Men, public space is abandoned, given over to uncollected garbage and stalking animals. One especially resonant scene takes place inside a derelict school through which a deer runs. Neoliberals, the capitalist realists, par excellence have celebrated the destruction of public space uh, of public space but contrary to their official hopes there is no withering away of the state in children of men only a stripping back of the state 
to its core military and police functions. I say in parentheses official hopes since neoliberalism surreptitiously relied on the state even while it has ideologically excoriated it. This was made spectacularly clear during the banking crisis of 2008 when at the invitation of neoliberal ideologues, the state rushed in to shore up the banking system. Yeah. Um, I I just, I, go ahead. It just brings that concept that we did talk about uh, in the Who Dies, where it's just that, uh, and obviously we'll get to that quote in this book at some point, but the desertification uh, of these people's minds, like saving capitalism uh, is the only thing that is ever thought about. And they mentioned with neoliberals, while not acknowledging the fact that the only way they were able to save it was with a huge uh, set of actions by the state itself. And in that sense, uh, what always has frustrated me is that these people don't hate the government. They hate the government helping individual people. As long as the government is only helping giant corporations and that no individual person sees benefit, like a, a, an individual gain from it, they're fine. And that's what drives me fucking insane. It's like, y'all aren't even arguing that capitalism can exist without help. You just don't ever want to see any of that help go to the individual fucking drives me insane the other thing i want to talk on touch on is like neoliberal can be like all terms can be muddy and confusing and, but i just want to touch on uh when he talks about uh neoliberals here he's not he's not talking about either political party in the u.s what he's talking about is people uh, it really inside of both political par parties, especially uh, at the upper echelons. Uh, like a, a perfect example, in my opinion, of um, a neoliberal would be Bill Clinton, because he was able to, quote unquote, like, you know, reform welfare. And they had like a surplus during his presidency, right? Yes. So that's like a perfect example of someone that, you know, was uh, quote unquote liberal that uh, was also a neoliberal in the sense that he was for free market because he did NAFTA as well. He um, were on drugs, yeah, yeah. Strikes well, out shit. right, right, exactly. You know, we just want to make that clear that that neoliberal isn't talking about any specific political party. It's actually talking about the majority of those involved in. Yeah, in the upper echelons of, of politics in our yeah. country. And I think that's a super important thing to point out um, because for me, uh, one thing that's extremely confusing oftentimes is the different political terminology that America uses uh, as opposed to say like the EU or whatever. You know, uh, liberal in the American sense is often used almost to refer to progressivism in a lot mm -hmm. of, oh, you're too liberal for me. Um, but in the actual definition, that has fucking, those two things couldn't, well, they could be more incompatible, but they are not compatible thought. Being a progressive and a liberal aren't the same thing if you're using the actual definitions of these words. Um, well, and, and you could be a, a liberal, like a libertine, meaning like you could be liberal as far as like your sexual um, mm -hmm. proclivities or whatever. But if but that also could mean that you're liberal as far as uh, free market economics too. So um, that's where the overlap is. And that's, I often think of libertarians as 
the ultimate liberals because they're they love yeah. market economics, but which which includes you know child pornography and child labor, you know. So good people. The catastrophe in children of men is neither waiting down the road nor has it already happened. Rather, it is being lived through. There is no punctual moment of disaster. The world doesn't end with a bang. It winks out, it winks out, unravels, gradually falls apart. What caused the ca- catastrophe to occur, who knows? Its cause lies long in the past, so obvious or so absolutely detached from the present as to seem like the uh, caprice of a maling. What is it? Okay. Uh, being a negative miracle, a malediction, which no penance can ameliorate such a blight can only be eased by an intervention that can no more be anticipated than was the onset of the curse in the first place. Action is pointless. Only senseless hope makes sense. Superstition and religion, the first resorts of the helpless to proliferate. Uh, Heads up audience, I had no idea about this. Uh, Did a little bit of research in between. Uh, Caprice just refers to a sudden and unaccountable change of mood or behavior. Oh, so like capriciousness. Yeah. I've heard that before. I've never seen it without the, I've never seen it. I honestly think that not only does that describe the situation in children of men, but that it also literally describes reality today um, where we know we have these dooming apocalyptic things on the horizon to me, most notably climate change and the results that will happen of that. You know, we have general ideas of what caused that catastrophe to occur, the Industrial Revolution, things of that nature, uh, but that we're just so deep into it um, that, like we discussed in our Green New Deal article, uh, that there aren't the interventions that could be used or those things just seem so unimaginable um, that a huge parts of the population have resorted to just being like, well, God will sort it out. Uh, you know, we couldn't do things that we weren't intended to do. That shit is just terrifying to me. And we can see a rise in things like superstition and lack of belief in science. Like the anti-vax movement uh, honestly has legs. Um, And while I think these are more meme related than reality, shit like flat earth and, um, you know, we never made it to the moon, shit like that. It's people are straying away from reality because it's just too fucking depressing to acknowledge. So we grasp at all of these other straws of, shit that we for sure can't control to ignore the things that we may have uh, a possibility at helping with. Yeah. And I would even um, add QAnon in there too. Yeah. Oh fuck. Yeah. Um, Anything that um, people would rather believe that there is some nefarious shit going on. As long as people are controlling that nefarious shit. Yes. uh, Then they'd rather believe that than believe that there's just, chaos going on um that no one is is consciously contributing to you know and i i firmly believe um that that's a great point and is the basis of most conspiracies is like you said it's so hard for people to imagine that there is shit outside of people's control uh but what of the catastrophe itself it is evident that the theme of sterility must be read metaphorically as the displacement of another kind of anxiety I want to argue this anxiety cries out to be read in cultural terms. And the question the film poses is, 
How long can a culture persist without the new? What happens if the young are no longer capable of producing surprises? Children of Men connects with the suspicion that the end has already come. The thought that it could be well that it could well be the case that the future harbors only reiteration and repermutation. Could it be that there are no breaks, no shocks of the new to come? Such, such anxieties tend to result in a bipolar oscillation. The weak messianic hope that there must be something new on the way lapses into the morose conviction that nothing new can ever happen. The focus shifts from the next big thing to the last big thing. How long ago did it happen? And just how big was it? T.S. Eliot looms in the background of Children of Men, which, after all, inherits the theme of sterility from the wasteland. The film's closing epigraph, Shanti, 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 has more to do with Eliot's fragmentary pieces than the <clears throat> Upanishad's piece. Perhaps it is possible to see the concerns of another Eliot, the Eliot of tradition and the individual talent ciphered in Children of Men. It was in this essay that Eliot, in anticipation of Harold Bloom, described the reciprocal relationship between the canonical and the new. The new defines itself in response to what is already established. At the same time, the established has to reconfigure itself in response to the new. Eliot's claim was that the exhaustion of the future does not even leave us with the past. Tradition counts for nothing when it is no longer contested and modified. A culture that is merely preserved is no culture at all. So um, I love that. I love that. Oh, me too. Uh, and I love, um, so when I was rereading this last night, I saw the, the part about the wasteland and um, I grabbed my copy of the wasteland and, and reread it. I just love, I just envy someone like Mark Fisher, who's able to, watch something like children of men and see the connection to the wasteland because I never would have done that. Right. Not only do that, but be able to refer to or look into or whatever other essays that Elliot had written and come up with this stuff about um, culture and tradition, which is, or the, the, the canonical and the new, which is a fascinating. Idea. So, you know, Elliot wrote or published the wasteland in 1922 uh, I think he finished writing it in like 1919. So you have to remember that World War, World War One had just finished, right? Mm -hmm. And I don't think from what I've read about the Wasteland and from how I've read the Wasteland, it's not as much about conservatism as it is about modernity in in general and how the engines of modernity whether they be cultural or otherwise have created a wasteland, you know, and, um, and not only physically like with the fucking bombed out battlefields, but also interpersonally. Um, and and so I think that it's, it's less about maybe like conservatism versus progressivism and more about the engines of, of industry Keep in mind, Elliot was also a banker and he was like looking at what was going on with the hyperinflation in Germany or whatever um, after the Treaty of Versailles. He agreed with Keynes when Keynes was like, you know, this Treaty of Versailles is going to be our undoing. He felt so I feel like uh, the combination of modernity and and capital 
were what was most concerning, or maybe not most concerning, but were key elements in in the wasteland. Does that make sense? Yeah. Oh, for sure. The trauma, the death, all of that shit from the consequences of modernity. Mm. I guess I'm probably just in, since I haven't read it in a while, just putting in my thought processes of like what caused World War I, which was a series of alliances and things just fully not based in a modern world yes. uh, that when trying to mix with the modern world kind of set up uh, a series of dominoes that uh, were just primed to fall um, because they refused to acknowledge uh, how the world was starting to interact with each other and things of that nature. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why I, I love World War I. I, I find it fascinating. It's because it is so like kind of like early 18th century uh, aristocracy, or sorry, not 18th century, 19th century aristocracy, like just slamming headfirst into modern industrialization and, and the war machine, you know, and right. just like them not knowing how to, how serious to take it. And then also how to, you know, how to, to, to fight and, and, and interact with one another. Oh, you know? and the true consequences of, of modern yeah was just put into such a highlight. I mean, you had uh, motherfuckers literally sending out, like, you know, the French were sending out cavalry and shit to go right. fight and stuff. It just yeah. was such a clash of, like, holy fuck, man, we are unprepared for the destruction that we can now uh, wreak upon the globe when we get pissed at each other. Uh, <laughs> obviously, it was a very large event in history. <laughs> that, yeah, yeah, totally, totally. Uh, literally everything. Are you next? Am I next? What's going on? You are next. The The fate of Picasso's Guernica in the film, once a howl of anguish and outrage against fascist atrocities, now a wall hanging, is exemplary. Like its Battersea hanging space in the film, the painting is accorded iconic status only when it it is deprived of any possible function or context. No cultural object can retain its power when there are, when there are no longer new eyes to see it. We do not need to wait for children of men's near future to arrive to see the transformation of culture into museum pieces. The power of capitalist realism derives in part from the way that capitalism subsumes and consumes all of previous history. One effect of it, its system of equivalence, which can assign all cultural objects, whether they are religious iconography, pornography, or Das Kapital, a monetary value. Walk around the British Museum where you see objects torn from their life worlds and assembled as if on the deck of some predator spacecraft. You and you have a powerful image of this process at work in the conversion of practices and rituals into merely aesthetic objects. The beliefs of previous cultures are objectively ironized, uh, transformed into artifacts. Capitalist realism is therefore not a particular type of realism. It is more like realism in itself. As Marx and Engels themselves observed in the Communist Manifesto, capital has drowned the most heavily uh, ec ecstasies of religious fervor, of chivalrous enthusiasm, of Philistine sentimentalism in the icy water of egotistical calculation. 
it has resolved personal worth into exchange value and in place of the numberless indefensible character freedoms has set up that single unconscionable freedom, free trade. In one word, for exploitation veiled by religious and political illusion, it has substituted naked, shameless, direct, brutal exploitation. So one thing I would like to say, where he talks about... (laughs) status only when it is deprived of any possible function or context. I immediately thought of um, like Martin Luther King and like Martin Luther King day and how, um, you know, so many conservative uh, like talk radio pundits or like just pundits in general, will talk about Martin Luther King and his whole, like, I have a dream speech, but they only like take out a few lines that they like and they totally ignore his radicalism, both with anti-racism, but also economic egalitarianism or whatever, yeah. you know? No, they always highlight the racial divide that he was focused on without highlighting the fact that the true um, genius and what made Martin Luther King uh, Jr. such uh, an effective character is that he wasn't painting this as a racial divide. He was painting it as like, hey, this is bigger than this. This is an economic divide. Like, yes, Black people are often the largest victims of this economic divide. Please, poor white people, realize you're getting fucked too. Please, you know, uh, economically forgotten towns, economically forgotten lifestyles, please understand that you are the victims of the same large-scale villain that is causing our lives to be shitty. It's also causing your lives to be shitty. And if we can acknowledge that we are in this together as opposed to um, having to fight this battle in individual groups things will be a lot more effective. And they, you're completely right. That is so often ignored with Martin Luther King. Uh, and it is so often highlighted that he was focused on bridging racial divides, not economic divides. Um, and, that was- and also bridging <laughs> racial divides in the most like milk toast, uh, right. like calmest, most kindest right. way. When in reality... Yes. You know, at the time, his his shit was revolutionary. In its full context, still is, yeah. you know. Oh, fuck yeah. And that whole paragraph, or what you just read, gets to me really personally, because it is... Which part? I, uh, just the whole, uh, basically, um, the, the theme of assigning, taking away everything's value outside of its monetary value, monetary value. Okay. Yeah. Um, that the only thing that can give any. So from the communist manifesto then. Yeah. From the communist manifesto um, or when he's just talking about museums. Oh yeah. Um, putting things in and putting like a value to a Mayan mask or something like that. Um, now it's just here uh, for us to view as expensive artifacts from cultures that are no longer relevant and that we don't need to care about. Um, and that, that is what deep down upsets me the most about capitalism is that merit is only defined by your capital or your utility, like or your utility. And it just creates that things can have value and merit, um, just by existing, just by bringing happiness, um, just by making your day a little nicer. Um, you know, you can, a painting can be amazing without it being $10 million, um, but in today's day and age, it won't be acknowledged uh, until it's worth $10 million, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and go super nerd. Um, not that I love it. It's not something I can get super into. 
Um, but for me, the appeal of Star Trek uh, has always been that they moved away from a monetary-based system and moved to a merit-based system uh, where people's value is uh, more on what good you add to society, not what money you add to society. Is, uh, for me, uh, would be such an ideal way to live, that you can focus on doing things that have inherent value but don't need to have a profit attached to it at the end. Profit has, you can, has I, to me, anecdotally, profit has taken the driver's seat in literally everything. You know, I mean, why are churches freaking out right now? Uh, it's not because people are told that they can't believe in their religion anymore. It's because churches are being told, shit, you won't have people in your seats to give you your fucking money. And so that's what they're pissed about. They're not pissed about any sort of actual attack on religion. They are pissed that there is an attack on their fucking revenue streams. Do you want to read that last section? Because I think it really ties in. Oh, okay. Capitalism is is what is left when beliefs have collapsed at the level of ritual or symbolic elaboration. And all that is left is the consumer spectator trudging through the ruins and the relics. Yeah, I should have read that before we started talking. But yeah, that ties in with everything that's like so clutch, you know? Yeah, it really is. Yet this turn from belief to aesthetics, from engagement to spectatorship, is held to be one of the virtues of capitalist realism. In claiming, as Badu puts it, to have delivered us from the fatal abstractions inspired by the ideologies of the past. Capitalist realism presents itself as a shield protecting us from the perils posed by belief itself. The attitude of ironic distance proper to postmodern capitalism is supposed to immunize us against the seductions of fanaticism. Lowering our expectations, we are told, is a small price to pay for being protected from terror and totalitarianism. We live in a contradiction, Badu has observed, a brutal state of affairs, profoundly inegalitarian, where all existence is evaluated in terms of money alone, is presented to us as an ideal or has ideal. To justify their conservatism, the partisans of the established order cannot really call it ideal or wonderful. So instead, to say that all the rest is horrible. Sure, they say we may not live in a condition of perfect goodness, but we're lucky that we don't live in a condition of evil. Our democracy is not perfect, but it's better than bloody dictatorships. Capitalism is unjust, but it's not criminal like Stalinism. This is, I just want to highlight how fucking pithy I think this next sentence is. We let millions of Africans die of AIDS, but we don't make racist nationalist declarations like Milosevic. We kill Iraqis with our airplanes, but we don't cut their throats with machetes like they do in Rwanda, etc. <clears throat> the realism here is analogous to the deflationary perspective of a depressive who believes that any positive state, any hope, is a dangerous illusion. Uh, I, I'm going to cut there for my reading. That is an argument that I get into a lot with conservative folks. They often bring up any this argument all of the time. Like, sure, capitalism isn't perfect, but yeah, do you remember how many people Stalin killed? What about Mao? He killed so many people. And if you even try to bring up how many people capitalism has killed or you know, how many lives have been literally just disregarded or sacrificed for capitalism, they can always come back to, well, it was their choice. And it's because we don't have, uh, or historically, I think Trump is maybe changing that a little bit. 
we historically haven't had some asshole on TV being gleeful in the fact that, you know, we are killing Iraqis or people will go on public forums, um, you know, political figures and stuff uh, and talk about how terrible the AIDS epidemic and stuff is. They just leave out the part that we uh, were a huge, we were very antagonistic with it. Um, and that choices that we made allowed those things to happen. And it's because there isn't that just direct taking responsibility for it that people uh, just think capitalism is fine because everything else is terrible. Uh, and we can prove that this did that without taking any responsibility for the millions of lives uh, that capitalist policies themselves have taken. And he put that in just such I'm going to just read it again. We let millions of Africans die of AIDS, but we don't make racist national declarations. We kill Iraqis with our airplanes, but we don't cut their throats with machetes. Same results, fucking just more detached uh, ability to do it, which is, to me, very dangerous. Uh, and it's working super well because there are so many fucking people who just see uh, no faults whatsoever with capitalism. So that reminded me of this book, called rhetoric of reaction and when i say that reminded me i mean the uh badu quote reminded me of the book the rhetoric of reaction and this guy uh albert hirschman talks about uh the rhetoric of conservatism and in it he talks about like the three like reactionary narratives according okay it's the perversity thesis uh any purpose um uh, just some words that I understand what they mean, but I never see you. Action. Okay. Action to improve some feature of political, social, or economic order uh, only serves to ex exacerbate the condition one wishes to remedy. So an example of this would be like, um, well, if we, give people oh like like uh, they'll often talk about how like the war on poverty hasn't worked because like it's it's made poverty worse second one is the futility thesis holds that attempts of social transformation uh will be unravel unavailing Availing? yeah uh that they will simply fail to to make a dent and so that kind of is like uh well you know people are always gonna be poor. There's nothing we can do about it. And then the uh, Jeopardy thesis argues the cost of the proposed change or reform is too high as it endangers some previously uh, precious accomplishment. So like um, if... Uh, healthcare, man, we can't have right. because it'll... Do, how many insurance jobs will be lost? How many... That Jeopardy thesis gets used so often with talking about universal health care. Destroy this awesome system we have in place by replacing it with some shit that we just won't work. Crazy is they use arguments that just aren't true. Like, I can choose any doctor I want. It's like, oh, so you haven't read your insurance plan or looked at your list of providers? Because no, you can't do that. And, oh, dude, our wait times will be absurd. Oh, you mean like the four months you're having to wait to fucking get your nasal surgery? Oh, yeah. okay. I just love this because... After, uh, you know, reading this book, I came across these. I just noticed them everywhere now. Whenever talking to conservatives, they, they bust that shit yeah. out all the time. That was my, that was my sidebar rant for the, the day. So I feel like it's a good place for us to stop or, or we feel like it's a good place to stop because Paul pointed out 
that um, the next part of the chapter kind of um, goes down another road or another path. And so we're going to wrap things up here. And next episode, we will start on the end of page five of uh, Capitalist Realism. Um, Thanks for spanning the time with us. Thank you very much.